listener production. I always try to learn from every situation. And sometimes you have to like look in the eyes, your fear and go like, why do I worry about this? Or why is this consuming me so much? And I feel like when you actually really look at your fears, you often do find the reason why. Then I think when you start really working on what those core issues are within yourself, then you can really start becoming more empowered. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep with our most loved personalities. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but in this time of social isolation, I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we all love and admire. I always cry and have a laugh, so you can expect some tears and laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. In this episode, I speak with Olympic swimming champion Stephanie Rice, Stephanie won three gold medals at the Beijing Games and was recently inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. She's driven, compassionate, funny and doesn't suffer fools, all qualities that drew me to her when we first met. And I wanted to know what it's like being the best in the world at something when you're only 20 years old. How do you come to terms with that and work out if the best is yet to come? Okay, beautiful Steph Rice. I've got to disclose from the start that we are good friends and we first met working on The Real Dirty Dancing because our room was next door to each other's and I remember I would hear this panting coming from your room every morning. (laughs) Yeah, I was working out. Let's just like disclose, I was doing a physical exercise workout solo in my room every morning before we started filming at crazy hours. (laughs) Which I wasn't aware of at the very start because I would hear, I was thinking, what is she doing in there? And then I did say to you at breakfast, "Um, what is is going on? (laughs) A lot of panting. (laughs) Because The cabins were a little thin on the walls. (laughs) And, of course, as you said, you were getting yourself ready because you'd set some crazy sort of workout thing on YouTube. Yeah, I like to work out in the morning. I mean, I'm trying to change it up because I think mentally it's you get locked into certain patterns and things that feel good and routines. And I think that that's really good when you find a routine that works. But um, I like to kind of think of it as like bookending, like you open the day with things that make you feel good and then whatever goes on in the day, it doesn't matter, you close the day in the same way. And so I think as an athlete, like for me, working out is as much mental as it is physical and it's kind of like my way to prepare for the day. But I feel like everybody has sort of something, some little ritual that they do maybe. Well, I have a gallon of coffee, but... (laughs) well. I also have that. (laughs) You were so good because you said to me, and I still do this in other parts of my life, you said visualise what you've got to do and visualise it doing every bit really well. Mm -hmm. 
Well, there's so many um, scientific studies on the power of the mind and visualizing. And essentially you go through the same neuro patterns when you close your eyes and like daydream or visualize something happening as you do when you physically do it. I do it for speaking events that make me nervous. And I think any scenario which is unusual, so you haven't really done it before and lots of things could go wrong and it could also be embarrassing. All those kind of things make you more nervous and more anxious. So I try to prepare. And when you can't physically prepare for it, you can mentally prepare by visualizing the scenario, visualizing how you want to feel, how you want to look, um, how you want to speak, all those types of things just help you feel more comfortable when you actually do your performance. I'm glad it helped you. It is such a good Mm -hmm. tip. And it made me think too, did you do that with your swimming? Yeah, every night before the Beijing Olympics, I had this quote on my ceiling. So when I lay in my bed, I could see the quote. And it's a quote that has like stuck true to me. It's by Napoleon Hill, whatever the mind can conceive and believe it can achieve. So for me, that's very much around like, I think we can talk ourselves in and out of absolutely everything. And so I always try to be glass half full versus glass half empty, which I know you are as well. And I think in every scenario you can imagine like things going wrong. And so it's like, I already know that. So I try to like use conscious effort to think of the things that could go well or how I could do how I could do a good in this scenario. And it's much harder. I think it's the easy route to go down the negative pathway. So it takes a little bit more work. And I do visualize like, so when I was preparing for Beijing, I would like kind of lie in bed and just think about what it would feel like walking out onto the pool deck, the crowd, the energy, how I wanted to feel. I never really visualized the race itself. Like, because to me, those were so many un unpredictable scenarios. Like I could, I didn't have control over that aspect. And so visualizing the race almost made me more stressed. And so I always knew that it was important to enjoy the visualizing versus like making me more nervous. And so, yeah, when I I saw the studies and like heard Serena Williams did it before all of her matches and like um, I knew Michael Phelps did it, I was like, oh, I was onto something back then. (laughs) You were. And I was looking at your races again. And I am so nervous watching you and I know what happens. (laughs) I know. I still, like, I don't get that nervous watching it now, but I I remember the feeling that I had when I was doing it and I do not miss that at all. So what was that feeling? Nervousness is this really, really fine line between being excited and being really anxious. And in those scenarios that are high pressure or mean a lot to you, you can kind of teeter both ways. Like, and I always did my best races when I was more excited than more anxious, but in Beijing, I just never felt that nervous ever before. And so I was then nervous about how nervous I was feeling because this is like foreign and maybe this is wrong and maybe I won't do well. And like, it just brings up all the what ifs. And so I just don't miss that feeling of um, like ultimate pressure and that everything you have worked on and worked hard for 
it really comes down to like one moment, run race, one time. And that's just like so much pressure to put on any one person. And I always put the most pressure on myself because I think at the end of the day, I would have been the most disappointed if I didn't do well. Everyone else would get over it, but I probably wouldn't. So I just... I don't know. I I don't miss that at all. I think it's why I've like so happily stepped away from swimming because I I don't want to experience that again. Like it's as much joy as it is real, like hard times. Because even hearing you talk about that, I have massive butterflies in my stomach. My (laughs) hands are sweaty and I didn't live through it. I didn't do it. How though did you manage to push through those nerves? Because You know, you won three Olympic gold medals at those Beijing Games. How did you push through that to then absolutely nail it each time? Hmm. Well, I think that momentum plays a big part. So I had broke the world record at the trials, the Olympic trials, two or three months before the game. So I was already riding on this positive momentum that I was doing well and that things were working. And so I sort of used that confidence, inner confidence more than anything. Um, And I think the first day, like I race on day one of the Olympics. So I was never allowed to go to the opening ceremony or do any of that stuff because we race like the following morning. And the first race for me at the Olympics is the hardest race, (laughs) like the 400 medley. So it's kind of like starting out with the worst case scenario, which in a lot of ways was also good because you just got the shit one out of the way and then you could focus on having a bit more fun. Um, And so I think like for, for me, I like, and every athlete will have this. So as much as it's TMI, everyone will relate, but I get nervous. What's too. TMI? I'm too a- much information. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> so on the day of my race, I literally went to the toilet eight times and I raced at 10 a.m. <laughs> and did you have your suit on? Like, did you have to get in So and out this of that is suit? all part of the planning is like, oh, no. do I need to go before I get the suit on? Because once the suit is on, you're not you're not screwing around with taking it off. It takes like 20 minutes to get on. Um, But it's kind of like, I think the ultimate way to describe it is like, that's just a reaction in your body to how much nervousness is kind of going on. And it's like that fight or flight, but I was just like, my body was preparing to like run from some ultimate tiger. And I was like, I'm losing four kilos on race day. Um, That happened to me every big competition. And I think it's kind of like getting... I think about racing well and handling that situation is my coach would always say it's getting familiar with the unfamiliar feeling. So like being comfortable with feeling uncomfortable, which is like counterintuitive, but it's, I think a lot of people get stuck in their comfort zone and it feels comfy and it's, I know what to do when I'm in this space, but when I'm not in that space, you can freak out. And so it's kind of like just getting used to being outside your comfort zone. And we prepare for that. Like you don't just throw somebody in the Olympics if they haven't sort of prepared and had pre-test runs at other competitions to get used to what that would be like. But the Olympics is just putting everything on steroids. I do love, I mean, I laugh, I love that you say that you do a nervous poo because I know we, we've chatted no, about. eight. Eight. A lot of them. <laughs> Not just one. <laughs> I love it because, I, I mean, 
Mine does not compare to yours in the sense of I was in a pantomime and I was a queen and I had to do nervous poos before I went on stage for the pantomime. That's nothing like those. Yeah. Swimming but in an Olympic all, race. No, but, but it's but all relative. Yes. It's all relative. Like my Olympics is somebody else's big board meeting or on stage event or, you know, speaking event. I, I mean, I still get nervous for little, like little things like that for me compared to the Olympics. They still make me super nervous. <laughs> so, yeah. Isn't that funny? And what what about with the crowds? Do you, when you were swimming, do you hear the crowds screaming and egging you on or are yeah. you in your own zone? Uh, well, you can hear it, but your head is under the water for the most part. So it's kind of like an echo of cheer. You can definitely hear muffled cheering. Um, you wouldn't know who it's directed at. <laughs> just it's just cheering and noise. And I think for the most part, it's just energy. Like you kind of feed off the energy that's within the stadium and the cheering and the yeah, excitement of what's going on. Yeah, I just really felt for the swimmers in Tokyo not having the crowd to help lift their energy. And some athletes perform well with that because it adds another level of pressure. So some people perform better without that pressure, but I would have performed worse. I think it's really hard for some people to like lift to a new level when you don't have other people around you helping that happen. Because I loved looking at the the vision of of, the, of you winning and ha- people up in the stands cheering and waving and oh, it was amazing. Weiss coming at Coventry. They're both inside world record pace. It's going to be a touch. Does Steph wow them again? Yes, she does. I remember when I um, touched the wall in like basically both of my individual races when I won. And I had no idea where my family was sitting. So I was like, where are you? (laughs) I couldn't find them at all. There were only like only three people that I wanted to be able to find and like wave at, but I ended up waving at everybody but them probably. Just seeing that and the the massive open mouth smile on your face. That I mean, was it kind of relief? Was it euphoria? Yeah. What was it? That I think felt? it's all those things that happen all at the same time. So I think the biggest feeling is obviously pride. So this feeling of like all that training and all that hard work was worth it <laughs> and it paid off. Then there's definitely the aspect of like achieving a childhood dream that happens for you very clearly. Like you either do it or you don't. Whereas that like the black and whiteness of sport is pretty, um, like it's just very obvious if you've achieved something or not. So for me, it was also this feeling of like, I always wanted this and I can't believe I did it. But then there's a huge aspect of relief. Like, thank God it all came together and I won because there's no second chance to have another go. So it's definitely all those feelings that all kind of come to life all at the same time. What is it like to swim fast? What is that feeling like? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's very empowering. Like that's the thing that I don't have anymore. Like I can still get in the water without having swum for a year. My technique is still really good. I can still look good in the water and I'm still fast relative to the other people in the local pool, but (laughs) you lose that top end speed, like that really fast reaction 
feel good. When you swim fast, it feels like you're in flow is the easiest way to describe it. It's kind of like that feeling when, you know, when you're driving and you're not, you're just kind of in your own mind and then you get to the place and you're like, oh, I'm here. I didn't really like I wasn't feeling like I was paying a lot of attention because it's like autopilot. That's the feeling when you're like really fit and really ready. It just feels easy. It doesn't feel forced. And that's a really, really hard place to, to get to. Cause naturally when you want to do well, you force, you try hard, you know? So it's like counterintuitive to relax into it. So would you say then, cause I think that's fascinating that then when you would dive in and then do you have to almost let go in a way and not think I've got to go really fast? It's why you'll hear a lot of athletes say it felt like an out-of-body experience because it feels like you were there and you know you were present, but you also felt like um, maybe it was like a moment of grace or alignment where things just go right and it flows and it's easy and it's definitely about letting go and in swimming it's really easy to go like super fast down the first lap because you're excited and you've got all this energy and like oh my god here it is and it's really easy to get ahead of yourself so if you're swimming like a 200 meter race that's four laps it's really easy to kind of be ahead of yourself and what a lot of the stuff you learn through race like racing practices like just being in the moment like be in this lap at this point in time and just stay with where you actually are um that's so hard to teach somebody that flow it's called flow but it's so hard to teach because it's a feeling it's not like a certain steps that you do to achieve something it's like the feeling of flow What what I want to chat about now is the time leading up to the London Games because that was a different kind of time, wasn't it, for you, where you had, Mm -hmm. what was it, three shoulder reconstructions? Yeah, I'd had had one. Um, I had torn the tendon in my shoulder in like a year after Beijing. So I had basically just got that back together, like I was training well and I'd recovered from the loss of that first surgery. And then sort of six months before the Olympics, I tore the tendon in my shoulder again. And at that point, it was just too close to the Olympic trials where you have to go to be selected. Um, It was too close to have like any kind of surgery to repair my shoulder. So I sort of had the choice of, which was no choice to me, of like, stopping um, and having the surgery or just pushing through with the torn tendon. So obviously I was not going to miss the Olympics. Um, So I trained for like eight months on a torn (laughs) tendon in my shoulder. So basically the further or the closer we got to the Olympics, like the worse I got. So it was just like running out of time. Like I, I just was like, couldn't wait for the Olympics to be finished because I just was so unprepared. Um, and that's an awful feeling to have when you go into anything that means a lot to you to feel like you haven't ticked all the boxes because you know other people, especially in a competitive environment, that you're up against have. So you already know you're going in like worse off than everybody else. 
And I, I had food poisoning a week before the games and like, it was just felt like into the lead up to Beijing, it felt like the universe was aligning everything in my favor. Like, not like I could do no wrong because stuff went wrong, but, um, I just felt like I was protected, if that makes sense. Like the path was made easy for me. And then in London, it was like, oh, something else might go wrong. Like, oh, we'll just screw that up for you as well. I was, and it felt like I was just constantly battling with trying to just get through and trying to remain um, like calm, but also confident, like amongst so much adversity. And I feel like everybody has a breaking point where you're kind of like, I think if something else goes wrong, I'll lose it. And so that happened quite a few times. (laughs) My poor coach, I feel like he aged a lot that year. Um, And it was, it was just a shit way to prepare for the Olympics, especially because I didn't want to tell like anybody what I was going through from a public standpoint, because then it just amplifies everything else and they start asking you about it and I don't want to be one of those people that has every excuse under the sun why things go wrong so I just sort of kept it to myself and (laughs) kept downplaying how I would go and yeah disappointing but oh well. But I think though what you did takes incredible mental courage and you know the easy way out could have been well I'm not going to do it but you kept going and often I think I know for me, I learn in life, it's not about where you come, it's actually how you get through it. Yeah. And yeah. so I think you're very courageous, Steph, to do oh, that. Oh, yeah. Like I, I'm so proud of um, just dealing with that adversity. Like I'm not, it's kind of one of those weird feelings where it's like I'm still proud of the performance and I, but I'm more proud of myself for getting through it and dealing with it or learning ways to like stay positive amongst everything going wrong. Um, I think I'm just more disappointed. You know how you have those moments where you're like, not what if, because I did everything possible. I don't have a regret, but like more for me is a feeling of like higher consciousness thoughts of like, why was that the path? Like, why did I have to deal with all of that stuff at that year like why wasn't it the year before when it didn't really matter or the year after like I think I ask those big questions because those for me are how you actually learn uh, from that scenario and apply it to other aspects of life because I wasn't going to keep swimming so I was like why did this happen like give me some kind of peace to like understand why that happened do you know what I mean like I was looking for the hindsight And so when you asked yourself that question, why is this happening or why did it happen, for you, what was the answer? Oh, I don't think I've still found it. Um, I think I found aspects of it, but I still feel like it's the, it sort of still evades me a little bit. Like I, I'm not entirely sure. I I want to be able to explain this without sounding really woo-woo. But I think. Now, come on, you know I like (laughs) woo-woo. I I know that you're not as woo-woo-y as me. So um, I think that when you, I believe that your body responds to whatever your mind is telling it. Um, And so I think if you fear something or you have a lot of anxiety that that expresses itself in your body in some shape or form. So like whether it's breakouts or, um, you know, like injuries or stiffness or it's all, I think, that you should listen to what your body is telling you. Cause it's saying like, 
it's it's not like it's done something wrong. It's kind of like generally that you've pushed yourself too far or you're fearful of something and you can like really understand that through what's going on in your body. So I think that I had a lot of fear around not achieving what I did four years before because in Beijing, I was still like a kid. Like it was just swimming was still sort of like a hobby, if that makes sense. Like Whereas in London, it was a job. I had a lot of money, a lot of sponsors, a lot of responsibility, a lot of people that were now invested in my, you know, success. And not that they were putting pressure on, but I felt a lot more pressure to fulfill other people's um, expectations. Yeah. And to prove like, I can do this. Like I was I'm good kind of thing. And so I think that that feeling I had expressed itself through some of my injuries and my sickness and stuff like that. And so I think that if I learn anything from that time, it's more about like, I'm very, uh, intuitive. Like, so I generally know right away, something's not right or, my body feels a bit off or so I try to always listen to what my body is telling me now and learn what is this, like what's the bigger thing that's going on here that I need to kind of really work on. Because what I I really found quite telling when I, I was looking at the video where you announced your retirement from swimming, you said in that video that you felt like you were losing a part of yourself, but you also said that someone had said to you, but what if swimming is a platform to something else? Yeah, that was really empowering to me because swimming was my life. So it wasn't like I had other stuff going on. And so it was my whole world. Um, And I then felt like if I stop swimming, I have nothing left. And that obviously what I had achieved through Um, gold medals but also like publicity and accolades and money and all this stuff that I was already at the top of my life mountain and everything was going to just be downhill and at 24 thinking like I've already peaked in not just swimming like in life um that was like a really shit feeling (laughs) like I just was like well what's the point like not that I was I would have said I was depressed without necessarily getting tested or checked or whatever but it was kind of like this feeling of just emptiness and loneliness and like also just lost like I just had no idea what I was going to do after that because I hadn't ever studied or prepared myself for some career like you know pathway (laughs) because I think if you want to be the absolute best at something like and I'm talking like one microsecond determines first or second, which determines like being the person on the back of the weedy box and not being recognized at all is you can't have your eggs in multiple baskets. Like, because every time you put some focus on something else, you take away focus from that ultimate goal. So I just thought when I was swimming that I just know I have a small window of opportunity and I just want to put everything I have into it. And then when I finish, I'll try other things and do other things. Um, But then vice versa, like when you finish, you have nothing. And so that was really, really hard. And I also felt like nobody could really understand or relate to the feelings that I was going through, because if you hadn't have achieved what I had achieved, you 
don't really get it. Like I just felt like people don't really get it. And lots of people were just like, oh, you just got a job. And I was like, in what? I have no skills. Like, (laughs) and I don't see myself working in an office like nine to five. Like that's just not who I am. And it's not at all because so how then did you work through it? How did you get through it? A nightmare. I feel like I was trying to find the checklist that, like, if somebody could just say, like, this is step one, two, three, and like discovering yourself and just go do the things, I would have, like, no problem. I can do that. But trying to find what you enjoy is so hard because you really just have to try anything and everything. And I was really, I think because I was so low, I was so open to try everything. Like I was like, I don't care what it is. I'm not going to prejudge it. If it helps me in even the smallest way, it was worthwhile. And so I, in even just the health space, because I had like really bad adrenal fatigue after I finished swimming, I had had glandular fever while I was swimming and then I had the shoulder injury. So I was like really on a mission to repair like my body. So I did kinesiology, Reiki, healing, counseling, nutrition. I just tried absolutely everything. I did personal development workshops and classes. I read lots of books, listened to lots of audio books and I was just open to try everything. In the end, I feel like personal development really worked for me. Um, And that was stuff like Tony Robbins seminars, uh, lots of books around, you know, um, success, but also like um, how to mentally like think about how to do things and achieve things. And I think the thing I realized too is that when you find something that doesn't work for you, that's as much of a win as finding something that does work for you. And so even within career stuff like TV, for example, I have always enjoyed media, but I didn't really know like where I fit in that big, vast array of media. And so I tried a bit of everything. Like I tried being an interviewer, I tried like live TV, I tried radio. Like I just, I was like, I'll just try everything. And I would do it for like two days. And I was like, no, this isn't for me. I don't enjoy this. And then when I did find something that I liked, I was like, let's try and do more of that. Like that was really enjoyable. Another thing that sort of drew me to you when I first met you was I love your bluntness. I love the way you face it. No, but I love that because I'm not like that. And I wish I could be a bit more like that, that basically, like you're saying, no, I don't like it. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to move on. I don't care. I'm going to. And I think that's such a great trait of yours. Thank you. I I think I've learned to try to do it more professionally than I used to. Um, I think sport teaches you to be blunt because it is a black and white environment. So I'm also used to receiving blunt feedback. <laughs> like that was a really bad session today. And you're like, oh, okay. Because um, sugarcoating doesn't help anybody. Like when you're doing feedback, I'm blunt because I don't like to, I don't like to lead people on because I've been led on a number of times before in relationships or in work scenarios. And I don't like the way that makes me feel. So I don't like to give people false hope or tell people I like something when I don't really like something because it doesn't help me in any way and it doesn't really help them. 
which is, I mean, it makes such good sense. I do just want to briefly talk about India because Mm. that's a place that's very close to your heart. I mean, travel, you have such, I think, wanderlust. You love seeing Mm. the world. I love travel. And India's a place where you now have worked so much and you love it there. I know, but it's so hard now with COVID because I had been working there for like five years around uh, TV and sport and swimming clinics. And then I was setting up my academy there with the Indian and Australian government. Um, And then obviously COVID hit. And so I can't go for one and I can't really do anything remotely. So it just feels like kind of like one of those turning points, you know, where you're like, I feel like the door is getting shut on this project or opportunity and maybe I'm meant to be steered in a different direction. So I don't know. I'm sort of just allowing that to unfold in whatever way it will unfold. You and, know? and I think for all of us, that's sort of what we need to do now more than ever is just to let things unfold and almost let things right. be. And it's it's hard though. It's hard when you're used to making things happen and developing things and on the go. Yeah. And it's just to sort of sit in it and with it. But it's yeah. Hard. And I think it brings, yeah, I think it brings up a lot of uncomfortableness for a lot of people in different areas and different reasons why. And I think like that's, I guess to come back to that sort of lessons around like leading into the London Olympics when things go wrong, that's sort of, for me, I always try to learn from every situation. And sometimes you have to like look in the eyes, your fear and go like, why do I like worry about this? Or why is this, you know, consuming me so much? And I feel like when you actually really look at your fears, like, and really kind of put work into looking at it because often we're just like, yeah, 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 like push that off to the side sort of thing. Um, When you really look at it, you often do find like the reason why, like it's stemming from something else. And I think when you start really working on what those core issues are within yourself, then you can really start becoming more empowered and being comfortable with being in, you know, different scenarios and I, that's what I've been trying to do anyway over the past year and a half. I just, I love talking to you so much because it it brings back to me also to just so many happy personal memories of when we first met. And for me, doing that show, that the absolute silver lining was meeting you and that you you have to be open though to situations of, of meeting people, of putting yourself out there and finding these unexpected wonders. And and so for me, yeah. that, that's that's what's so special. And Aww, that's so lovely. <laughs> I felt the same way. I was like, especially because we're in the middle of nowhere in Virginia, like it was really isolating. And I was just so glad that I had like a friend through all of that because it was just really hard. It was really testing and lonely. Steph. What a treat to see you, to chat with you, and I'm giving you the biggest hug in the world. I can't wait. Oh, I to, know. I to can't share. wait for a real one. It's so wonderful to talk to you, beautiful. Thank you, you. Too, honey. Love You're you. You're so welcome. Mwah. I reckon you can tell just how much I love Steph by that conversation that we had. We'd still be talking if our producer let us. Next week, I speak to superstar chef. Curtis Stone. He shares how tough love in the kitchen shaped him into the chef 
that he is today. Don't get me wrong, I've made lots of mistakes in my life too. You've got to learn from those and you've got to sort of pick yourself back up when something doesn't go your way and and get on with it. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Audio producer, Chris Marsh. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.